welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we are talking about chapter seven of The Subtle Knife, The Rolls Royce. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> wow. We're recording this in the middle of December, but for you guys, it's the new year. Happy 2021. You made it through 2020. Congratulations. <laughs> what is it like on the other side of 2020? Is it nice at the beginning of 2021? I can only assume it's the same as 2020 so far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's January, which is... Sorry for anyone who enjoys a January, but it is the worst month, so we're going to get through it. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's truly the worst month. I hate January with a fiery passion. But yeah, you're right. We will. We will get through it. We'll get through it. And, you know, maybe 2021 will be like more back to normality. I hear there's a vaccine now. Who knows? <laughs> but you know what 2021 will bring? It's us finishing the soul knife. Oh my God. Oh my God. Well, uh... And probably starting the Amber's Glass. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I know. It feels like we only just finished Northern Lights, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like we can't go on because I feel like we'll just be mentioning it now in every episode forever. And I feel like it's warranted. Did you all enjoy the interview we did with Lin-Manuel Miranda? Yes. If you haven't listened, that came out on the 4th, which is not even that long ago. So you can go back and listen to it and then you'll understand us freaking out about how great it was because it was super great and super fun. It was so great. We had a blast with Lynn. Then we had a nice thing afterwards where we met up and, and had a few drinks and, and talked about the podcast and how well we've done, which we never do because we are always so in the world of the podcast that we never step outside the world of the podcast to be like, actually, we're doing quite well with this podcast. Yeah. Congratulations on another excellent year of podcasting. Yay. We have learned so much. We've learned how to record in different rooms from each other, in different houses from each other. We've learned how to mix and master all of our own episodes now. And like, we've learned so much. It's so exciting. And then we've done some really big things like talk to Daphne and talk to Lynn and talk to Caroline and just so many people who it's just amazing that they want to talk to us. And that has all happened in the last year. Yeah, we have done some pretty big things for two people that were just like, oh, we're going to start this podcast for fun. Thinking that like, <laughs> maybe our friends would listen, which our friends don't even listen. So whatever. <laughs> some of them do. Some of shout them do. out to my friend Ellie again. Avid listener. She loves it when she gets a shout out. <laughs> yes, Ellie. Thank you. Thank you. All their other friends are like, we don't know his star materials. And I'm like, do you not just want to listen to our lovely voices? And they're like, we hear too much of that anyway. That's fair enough. But you know what? That's why our Patreon is so good. And that's why the Discord, little Discord chat that we've got on Patreon is so great because everybody in there is so enthusiastic about his dark materials so if you're feeling like the people that you see in your day-to-day -day life aren't supporting your his dark materials needs definitely come on over and join our patreon family and join the discord chat because it is excellent <laughs> absolutely and there are a lot of people in there that are in similar boats that have come to us and said oh like we're so happy that the discord is a thing because 
we love his dark materials, but we don't really have anyone to talk about with it. And now that they do, and now we all do, and it's just so nice yeah, to it's so nice. geek out with everyone. <laughs> you can do that if you want to. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. Yeah. Speaking of Patreon, we have to say, or we would love to say, a big thank you to Joe. Hi, Hi Joe. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. to the family. Welcome. <laughs> Sorry it's taken us so long to get around to thanking you, but the way that the episodes fell. We didn't want to thank you in a TV show episode. We wanted to thank you in a big bumper book episode. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Yay. Hey, Faye. Hey. What do you think your demon would have been this week? It's a very good question because I wrote my notes ages ago and I can't remember what I wrote. So let's see. Oh, let's have a little look, shall we? <laughs> So, this is a good one. I've been playing Animal Crossing again. Although soon I will be starting my island entirely new because I'm getting a new Switch because the Switch I use at the, the minute is not mine. So I need my own Switch. And I'm getting the Animal Crossing Switch, which is excellent. So I'll be starting a new island soon, which I'm quite excited to do. But anyway, at this point, when I wrote these notes, I was still playing on my old island and I'd abandoned it for ages. Rich, when you abandon your island on Animal Crossing, like, loads of weeds grow and you have to like pick them. So I spent like a few hours just like going around like picking all the weeds on my island. And I was like, oh, I could have used some help with that. If that was real me on Animal Crossing with a demon, like what animal would be able to help me with that? And apparently gophers. Gophers help. Yeah. So apparently they eat plants by sucking them down by the roots. (laughs) Um, And also apparently they love eating cannabis leaves. Ah. Yeah. You'd have a very chilled out little gopher pal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I feel like that would be, that would have been useful. But I ended up picking all the weeds by myself without a gopher friend. But what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Well, exactly. <laughs> what about you? What would your demon be? It's cold. It's getting dark. I'm spending a lot of my life in big cozy blankets. And I also saw a really funny TikTok the other day that was like, why can't you hug bears? Who made bears and made it so that you can't hug them? They're so fluffy. They're so cute. Their ears are so small. Why can't you hug them? So I would want a bear. I would want a bear that I could hug. And he would be my big fluffy bear. Yes, it would be great. He might take up a lot of space in the house, but he would basically just like live on the sofa and be there for me to like cuddle up to when I want to watch like Christmassy holiday movies. And bear in mind, we're recording this before the new year, but like also going into January, like it's going to be cold. It's going to be cold and wet and rainy and miserable and I think a big massive cozy bear would be amazing I don't know if you'd be a grizzly bear maybe a black bear because they're like a little bit smaller grizzlies are quite big like a little black little Canadian black bear oh and he'd be like I'm sorry about how cold it is and I'd be like (laughs) I love you (laughs) yeah I know we've spoke we spoke about this I think literally in our first ever episode of the podcast but the logistics of having a bear demon or having a big demon can you imagine just have to, having to like get on the bus or whatever with a massive bear? They'd have to like sit in the seat next to you. It would be adorable. They'd just have to make buses differently in worlds where you have demons. They'd have to be like, instead of like a bike or a pram section at the front, there'd be like a, you've got a bloody massive demon section at the front of the bus. <laughs> oh, all the demons like penned in together. <laughs> well, yeah, because you couldn't have too many people and demons. Like, I'm sorry, I just had like a bra- brain moment. Imagine being in Lyra's world in rush hour when everybody's getting in each other's I mean this is in a pre-covid world as well like when everyone's getting in like each other's faces and you've got somebody's armpit in your face like it'd be so hard not to touch someone else's demon there would definitely be like accidental touchings of demons oh, 
horrible. Maybe they just don't do it because everyone is just way more courteous of other people's personal space because of the demon taboo. That would be a nice world, wouldn't it? It would be, yeah. <laughs> that made me think if Lyra's world had COVID, would the demons not be able to get close to each other either? So like, do you know, if we were social distancing, would our demons be able to like meet up in the middle and have a little chat? Great question. Like, can they transfer viruses? Yeah, it depends how magical they are, I guess. Because if, the, as the TV series seemed to suggest, they don't need to eat, which removes our do demons eat, do demons poop thing, do demons contract diseases? I think, no, I think if they did, it would have to be like a special dust-related illness. Something specterish, perhaps, that would be like a specter flu. Oh, I'm just, sorry, I was just thinking about a little poly demon in bed. Oh... You'd have to just, like, carry them around in your hoodie. Oh, That was an excellent rabbit hole that we just went down. Shall we talk about this book chapter? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Last chapter, Lee's mission to find Stanislav's Grumman led him to murder an Australian from the Magisterium. Serafina and Ruta witnessed what the spectres do firsthand and learned more about the new world that Chichigatsi is in. Ruta left to follow the angels on their journey to Lord Asriel's fortress. In this chapter, Lyra goes back to Will's Oxford without him to find Mary, where she's interrogated by the police. She runs away and is picked up by creepy Charles, who uses the opportunity to steal the alethiometer from her. Boo. To get it back, he tells Lyra and Will to bring him a knife. <laughs> so we open the chapter lyra has woken up but will is still asleep my first note basically is lyra woke early to find the morning quiet and warm as if the city never had any other weather than this calm summer and i think phil's doing that thing where he writes knowing that we're going to be reading it now just to punish me because i'm currently wrapped in a million blankets and i'm so cold I would love to live in a world where the weather is just always nice. <laughs> yes, I agree. I, I'm i just perpetually cold at the minute. Like, no matter how how long like I've had the heating on or whatever, I just can't get warm. I just want to be in that calm summer. Sounds so nice, doesn't it? It does. So Lyra heads out with that Will. He, he's in bed and she just goes down to like the harbour and sees some kids splashing about, just having a whale of a time. They're having like a little boat race and it's just really cute, I think. And Pan's a fish. Yeah, he's a fish and then he's a frog. <laughs> oh, it's so sweet. I kind of envy Lyra and how easy she finds it to speak to other kids. Like when I was a kid, I was definitely like the shy kid on the sidelines that found making conversation with... It always reminds me of when I, when I went on holiday. You'd always see like kids playing around the pool, where, like uh, if you went abroad or whatever. Your parents would encourage you to like make friends or whatever. And there'd always be like a group of kids. And I'd always be that really awkward kid on the sidelines, like inching closer to the group of kids, but not like daring to like interact with them and wait, kind of like waiting for them to notice you. That was so me. But like Lyra, she just like barrels up to them. And I wish I had that confidence when I was a kid. Yeah, in no time at all, she's got them to like finish their like game with the boats and they gathered around her chatting to her. And that's when Pan turns into a frog and creeps inside of her clothes because she has gone and splashed back in the water too. So she's all damp and she's got a little frog and it's really cute. And they start asking her about why she had the cat and what's going on with that. They say that cats, they got the devil in them, all right. And then that made me think, Rich, you were right. Cats got the devil in their butts, apparently. They don't say butts, but I'm just assuming it's butts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that link that we picked up a few chapters ago when we were looking at why people are superstitious with cats is a big part of this. It is their like 
religious superstition. Also, did you know what a pard was? Because it says, what was you doing with that big pard? Yeah, but he does say that Lyra realises that he meant Pan in his leopard shape. I just love the idea that it's an abbreviation of leopard, like pard. So I googled it. I wanted to see if it came from anything. And it says... On Wikipedia. I went deep, as you can tell. A pard is a legendary animal that is listed in medieval bestiaries and in Pliny the Elder's book, Natural History. Over the years, there have been many depictions of the creature, including some adaptations with and without manes, and some in later years with shorter tails. However, one consistent representation shows them as large felines, often with spots. In that book, that natural history book that I mentioned, it says, Pliny writes about the creation of lepers, which were believed to be a hybrid animal, resulting from the union between a promiscuous lioness. I don't know why they've decided to say that she's promiscuous. <laughs> that dirty promiscuous lioness. I know, rude. <laughs> and the mythical pard. So that's how leopards were created, according to this. Does it only uh, work book. if the lioness is a slut? If she's like, gets with them, but she wasn't really sure about it. And she'd never usually do that. Do you reckon it doesn't make the mythical creature? I mean, can we, shall we not slut shame this lioness? Lioness. <laughs> I mean... She's just going about town doing whatever she's doing. If she wants to be promiscuous, she can be promiscuous. But is that a key factor in creating a leopard? Who knows? <laughs> oh, what a weird choice of qualifying word to put in there. <laughs> I know, so strange. But so anyway, does that mean that this pard, this cross between a lioness and a and a leopard, is that a thing that exists in Lyra's world? Not Lyra's world, but the Chittagatse world. Not even in Lyra's world, yeah, in, in, in the Chittagatse world. Either that or, like, they, the kids have just never seen a leopard and the closest reference they have is this, like, mythical creature they've read about. So at least they have the legend of it or it's just their word because it could just be an etymology thing. Instead of leopard, they've just ended up with pard, but it's come from the same legend. Yeah. Not a big fan of Lyra gaslighting these children where she's like, oh, you must have been dreaming. Come on, Lyra. Let's not. Let's not do that. I mean, right now for Lyra, it's easier than explaining what's going on, but yeah, I'm not here for it. She then kind of explains, like, because they're asking, like, why don't you worry about cats, da da da, and then, like, she mentions about how, you know, we don't have that legend about cats being evil, but also we don't have spectres, we don't understand those, please explain spectres more to me. And this is where the children lay out all of the exposition for Lyra right now that Serafina had last chapter. So... Uh, we get like a couple of little bits of additional information, but essentially it's very similar. We learn about the kids finding out, about, uh, like having some disagreements about where spectres come from, which our friend last chapter did explain to us and it being a few hundred years ago and it being like, oh, is it because people were bad or is it a science experiment gone wrong? And I just want to read out one little paragraph where one of the kids explains how his dad told him the story of it and I think it's really nice. This is what happened all right. This guild man hundreds of years ago was taking apart some metal, lead, he was going to make it into gold and he cut it and cut it smaller and smaller till he came to the smallest piece he could get. There ain't nothing smaller than that, so small you couldn't see it even but he cut that too and inside the smallest little bit there was all the spectres packed in, twisted up and folded over so tight that they took up no space at all but once he cut it open, bam, they whooshed out and they've been here ever since. That's what my papa said. Oh, papa. I love that description. I love that it's like turning lead into gold is like a key component of like alchemy and how people view alchemists. So that's a lovely little reference. And then it's sounding very much like the Large Hadron Collider vibes of like everyone's worried about what 
when I remember that being such a big thing in the news and they're like, we're going to do it, we're going to split a particle. Excuse my terrible actual vernacular surrounding physics stuff. <laughs> it's all very alien to me, but everyone freaking out saying like, oh, there's probably going to be a black hole like starting in Switzerland now. And like the spectres are this world's version of the black hole in Switzerland when somebody slices an atom too small. <laughs> <laughs> so do we think that there's truth in that then? Potentially. We kind of heard about them being from the guild, right? But we did we hear exactly how? they became a thing or was it just again it's all very much like speculation and yeah there's it's all kind of hearsay speculation and stuff that sounds like fairy tales and i wonder if we will get to find out specifically or if it's going to remain mysterious i mean one thing we know for sure is it all seems to go back to the guild yes one of the things that i wanted to call out very quickly that's just a bit before this is the granny abuse that's going on oh here god <laughs> fucking rude so yeah. oh boy she says they never said the girl my granny said they came because people were bad and god sent them to punish us your granny don't know nothing said a boy she got a beard your granny she's a girl all right <laughs> can we not uh, rude it's the perfect like childish insult though poor granny poor bearded granny we love it we accept you here bearded granny yes welcome on the pod anytime i mean not if you're going to be talking about god punishing us thanks but that's true, yeah, sure. yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also yeah this kind of we find out that all of this stuff is centered around the tower and that kind of sparks oh before that a little bit of patriarchy to call out here to do with the guild men being greedy and they're living off poor people. The poor people do all the work and the guild men just live here for nothing. Sounds sounds about right, doesn't it? Sounds very fucking familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all centred around this tower and Lyra is asking about if the guild men are there and they say, no, the tower is abandoned, it's deserted, there's nobody there. But Lyra kind of has this little spark of a memory of she's sure she's seen a young man up there. So we put a pin in last chapter, a couple of chapters ago when she saw this young man. We're going to just take it out and move it up a bit because <laughs> she's re-remembered him. She kind of also half remembers Paolo mentioning their elder brother Tulio and that Angelica had hushed him and Lyra's kind of starting to put some pieces of a puzzle together and we don't get anything confirmed. She's also convinced that these kids are lying as well because she's a practice liar and she knows when somebody else is lying and we don't know what they're lying about. She doesn't know what they're lying about but she's like convinced that they're not telling her the whole truth which is interesting. Like she leaves the kids to it to like fix their boats and stuff and heads towards the tower to check it out. I'm just gonna read a nice little description of the tower. Mm -hmm. The way she took led her through the little square they'd come to the night before but it was empty now and the sunlight dusted the front of the ancient tower and showed up the blurred carvings beside the doorway. Human-like figures with folded wings, their features eroded by centuries of weather, but somehow in their stillness expressing power and compassion and intellectual force. Angels, said Pan. Maybe spectres, said Lyra. No, they said it was something Angeli. Bet it's angels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and we know from last chapter that that description that Phil's given us sounds a lot like the description that we got of the angels. From Ruta's perspective. Yeah, exactly. I will want to call out that Lyra's obviously, she's impatient to go back and see Mary and Will's still asleep. So she leaves him a note. And it is placed by his bed, which is a much better place than where they placed it in the TV show, where they, she placed it in the kitchen downstairs. Yeah. If you're going to leave someone a note, leave it where they're going to find it, right next to where they're asleep. Great place to leave a note. Yeah, absolutely. She Before she decides to do that, she does 
like nose around the tower a bit more and it gives her the same vibe as the skulls in the crypt at Jordan College. And I feel like that's a really lovely little throwback to the first book and how Lyra and Pan would explore and play tricks and stuff. But now instead of pushing forward and being curious about this place that has the bad vibes, she gets the hell out of there. (laughs) And I I like that. (laughs) She's learned from her time in Northern Lights. Um, We've seen this quite a few times now already, actually, where she's learning from her experiences and growing up in a way she wouldn't have let that fear stop her last time like she didn't with the crypt but now she's like "Mm, actually it's actually kind of a really sad allegory for growing up because i i think about that a lot like a lot of the things i did as a kid and a teenager like quite reckless things i would never do now it's kind of like a loss of innocence isn't it where it's like you think that nothing can hurt you but like when as you start getting older you're like actually I need to think about all these things that could happen now and all the ways that this thing that I want to do could go wrong or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, only I wish I had that childhood innocence back. So she she runs down the steps and she heads straight back into Will's Oxford. A little speedy run for Lyra to look at the tower, decide, fuck that, I'm going to Oxford. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she gets into the college a lot more easily than she did last time because she now has Mary as her alibi and she says, you know, ask Dr. Malone, she knows who I am. Makes her way through the college and the porter's still quite, like, suspicious of her, but Mary's given her the okay to come in. But before she can get to Mary's office, Mary, like, psss at her from inside the ladies' loos and grabs Lyra and pulls her to one side because there's people looking for her in Mary's office. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Before we get there, there's a little bit that I stuck a note on, which made me laugh, where it's like the porter saying to her, like, don't go anywhere else. And she says, no, I won't. She said to me only, a good little girl doing what she was told. I'm like, <clears throat> lol. <laughs> like, Lyra <laughs> would ever do that. <laughs> so yeah, she's um she's pulled Lyra into, Mary has pulled Lyra into the toilet to kind of warn her that people are looking for her. Also, interesting, it says at the top of the stairs though, she had a surprise because just as she passed a door with a symbol indicating indicating woman on it, it opened and there was Dr. Malone silently beckoning her, beckoning her in. She entered puzzled. This wasn't the laboratory, it was a washroom and Dr. Malone was agitated. Does this mean that there aren't gendered toilets in Lyra's world? I guess not. Great. Or if they are, she hasn't noticed. It's something she's not become aware of yet. One of the, if it is that way, one of the only things where... Lyra's world is more progressed than ours. Yeah. Yeah, I find it. She said, this wasn't the laboratory. It was a washroom. I'm like, would she have thought it would be another lab? Because that's great. Like, this is the women's lab. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Not only do we gender our toilets, we gender our labs too. (laughs) Lyra seems very blasé about the fact that somebody's come to look at her. She, Mary is panicked. Mary clearly knows something is up. And Lyra kind of ignores it and she's like, oh, well, I can lie to them. That's easy. It's a very big overconfidence moment from Lyra here because we're about to see her slip up and we know it. Like, you can feel it in how overconfident and blasé she is about, oh, I'll just lie. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And it's one of those things, like, she is yet to realise, and I think it says it later on in the chapter, if I remember correctly, but she's yet to realise how different it is to lie in this world than it is in her world and whether that's just the case of she's used to lying in her world but yeah she's just like oh yeah i can lie she hasn't really taken anything else into account like the changes in the situation that she's in like the changes everything is different but because it feels quite familiar 
she's kind of just still in the mindset of, of her being in, in her own world, even though she's not. And she's just had a confidence boosting moment of fooling the porter again. So of course she's feeling overconfident. We meet a female police officer called Sergeant Clifford. And Lyra thought this young woman had a nerve acting as if it was her own laboratory, but she nodded meekly. When the police officer's like, come in, Lyra, take a seat. I like that she's like, the audacity. This is Mary's lab, not yours. Yeah, I love the authority that Lyra thinks that she has. She feels in herself, whether like she voices it or not, that she's like super grown up. Because there's a bit before that as well, when you were talking about Mary being like super anxious. There was no need for her to be so anxious, thought Lyra. But perhaps she wasn't used to danger. Like, Lyra. (laughs) Like, Lyra's like, I'm so used to danger. I know everything that's going on. And she's kind of like, basically what it is, is like, Phil is building up Lyra to get like knocked off her pedestal a little bit later in the chapter when every, when the thing happens and it rattles her. So now she's like, the audacity of this woman coming in Mary's lap. Mary, there's no need to be anxious. And it's like, okay, Lyra, okay. (laughs) Yeah. However, the moment she's in the room, she feels a twinge of regret. She knew she shouldn't be here. She knew that the alethiometer wanted her to help Will and that she's doing something different and it's that classic thing where she's like, oh, well, I'm in too deep now. I'm just going to keep plowing on regardless. I can get myself out of this. But we know she knows she shouldn't be there. And I think also the moment she sees the man with the pale eyebrows, who is Inspector Walters, that we also know that something's going to happen because we've heard his description before. We know he's the man that's been chasing Will. So in this bit where like Lyra sits down to like talk to the police officer, it says, Pantaliman, cricket formed in Lyra's breast pocket, was agitated. She could feel him against her breast and hoped the tremor didn't show. She thought to him to keep still. And sorry if we've spoken about this before, but if humans and demons can like think to each other, why do they ever talk out loud to each other? Maybe it's just a bit more effort to think it. It's easier to chat. Feels more natural to chat. Maybe, yeah. But I just feel like if I had that skill, I'd be like constantly using it. No, I know what you mean. But also, like, that might not be a communication that's being written down there. She she might be thinking to him to keep still. He might not be receiving that. She might just be thinking, keep still, Pan, keep still, Pan, and, like, willing it to happen as opposed to, like, actually communicating with him. I can't remember in the first book where she has any other kind of, like, mind-based interactions with him, whether that is, like outright super clear that they are communicating mentally or not yeah i definitely remember it coming up in the first book by classic as could not tell you the exact situation where it did come up (laughs) yep (laughs) this is about to be a classic conversation interview technique of lulling somebody into a false sense of security in order to trip them up so lyra gets asked a series of questions which she answers very proficiently and is feeling quite proud of herself for answering lots of different questions about why she's here, where she's come from, how she knows Mary, etc, etc. And does a very good job of it. She does a very good job of using the word physics instead of experimental theology. Yeah, she does a lot of good jobs of using the right words, using the right references. And then in the middle of this interview, she's asked, do you want to be a scientist when you grow up? That sort of question deserved a blank stare, which it got. I love it. I love Lyra being a really sarcastic young teenage child when somebody asks you oh is that what you want to be when you grow up i I, my read of that was like why is she having that reaction does she feel like disdain towards scientists or is she like just not here for the question i think it's just anyone asking 
you what you want to be when you grow up when you're like an age when you're already feeling quite grown up it sounds very patronizing it's what you ask like a seven-year-old and you expect the answer to be like oh I want to be a doctor or a vet or a fireman or that's yeah. true one thing that I did want to pull out of this conversation is right back at the beginning of it the police officer notices that she's got bruises like on her face and on her legs from like where the car hit her and that kind of stuff and he says has someone been knocking you about and that's like really colloquial like crass language for the thing that he's asking her about and I don't appreciate it like he's asking if basically she is being abused by someone and I just feel like the term is somebody knocking you about especially from a police officer it's not professional and also quite if that was me and I had been abused in any way and somebody said to me it's it's kind of like making light of it in a way that doesn't put Lyra that doesn't make her feel safe to be like if she was in that situation to be like actually, yes, this is happening at home and I would need some help. If somebody said to you, you've been knocked about, it's not really opening up the floor to invite that confession from a kid. I just don't like that use of language at all. It's almost like a little hint that this guy potentially isn't a specially trained police officer that knows how to interact with people that are potential victims of crimes. It's almost like a clue that he's got some other sinister ulterior motive to interviewing Lyra. But I don't think it's written as, oh, this is a hint, the fact that he's so untrained in actually speaking to people about sensitive topics could now read as a clue for that but i think when it was written it's not it's just a really rubbish colloquialism that feels thrown in there yeah not a fan of that towards the end of this conversation she is chatting about physics and she's chatting about her dad and his work and mary's work and she's in the middle of the lie and gets asked is will staying with your friends as well and she says yes he and stopped she knew at once she'd made a horrible mistake and so did they they were on their feet in the moment, in a moment to stop her running out, but somehow Dr. Malone was in the way. Yes. Yes, Mary. Just that moment when you know that you've done a bad is, and you're like, stomach drops. Phil's done a really good job of spending two pages getting us comfortable with Lyra having this conversation and having a, a really good lying, and then dropping us and her in it. Like, you really feel it. You feel your stomach drop and you're like, no, Lyra, no. Definitely. I would like to say as well that I think they did a really good job in the TV show of mary's accidental but on purpose help because uh, like in the book it's not clear until pan and lara discuss it later that she's helping them because it's just like somehow mary was in the way and that could have been like a coincidence and i think they did that quite well in the tv show as well to like kind of show that it was an accident but it was also on purpose yeah it was enough to not get her in any direct trouble so she could still be available to help lara but enough to stop them so lara could run away <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Then we have Lyra running away, right? She just fucking likes it. She's off. And it's very stressful to read. So she bumps into a couple of people and Pan turns into a crow and flaps in their faces, <laughs> which sounds horrendous. The fucking bit where she gets stuck in the revolving door, like my fucking heart. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. She's pushing it the wrong way. And like, I have... I've definitely thought about... I don't know why, but I've definitely thought about a situation like that before. I think it's kind of similar to... I don't know if you ever had dreams, like scary dreams, like nightmares, where you may be getting chased by someone and you get to your own front door and you like fumble the keys or it's locked and you don't have keys or something like that that like stops you from getting in. And I think just in general, like if I was ever getting chased with someone and I had to get my keys out and open my own front door, I would definitely fumble the shit out of that because you'd just be so scared and like have so much adrenaline. And like, it's a very similar situation and I did not like reading it all. <laughs> Yeah, and also it just felt very relatable, like the amount of times I push on a pull door or pull on a push door. 
but like turn that into a revolving door and it's even more stressful. <laughs> she cried out in fear and darted out into the other compartment, hurling her little weight against the heavy oh. glass, willing it to turn and got it to move just in time to avoid the grasp of the porter who got in the way of the pale haired man so Lyra could dash out and get away before they got through. Like hurling the, the weight of her little body against the heavy glass door. Like again, emphasizing how small she is and how scary it all is and how stressful it is just... <laughs> I know, I know. So yeah, the the running pan is like a swift above her, like telling her where to go. They lose the guy and they stop. Stop to get their breath. And then that's when they have a conversation about Mary helping them. And it's really cute that Pan says, uh, she's on our side, not theirs. Yeah, yes. Pan knows what's going on. Lyra is distraught and feeling a lot of regret. Uh, she's says like, I shouldn't have said that about Will. I should have been more careful. Pan chastises her and says he shouldn't have come. He said severely, but she hadn't got time to berate herself because Pan fluttered to her shoulder and said, look out behind. I like the thing of she doesn't have time to like beat herself up about this. She's got stuff to do. She's got to keep running. That kind of resonates quite hard with that, that kind of situation of like you know you've done a bad but you've just got to get through the next yeah when pan turns into a cricket and dives into her, into her pocket i have such an intense visual from mulan oh <laughs> i swear this i can't remember the name of the cricket the lucky cricket is it not just cricky maybe i'm gonna google it have a look i can't remember which bit but I swear there's a bit where I think it might be where she is like training or just after and she's in her tent and like somebody comes in. It's called Cricky, C-R-I-K-E. And he has to dive like into her pocket or into like somewhere around her or on her. And I just got a really intense visual of that when I read about Pan being a cricket and diving into her pocket. Brilliant. Uh, made me think it went yeah when he dives in the bowl of porridge yeah when someone comes in and then he like pops up from the middle of the bowl of porridge as the nose in like the happy porridge face maybe that's what i'm thinking of because like in my brain mulan does have chopsticks in her hand so maybe i'm thinking of that but some kind of bit of mulan anyway <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> then a large dark blue car gliding silently to the pavement beside her. She was braced to dart in the, either direction, but the car's rear window rolled down, and there looking out was a face she recognised. Lizzie, said the old man from the museum, how nice to see you again. Can I give you a lift anywhere? Oh, this creepy bastard. Mm-hmm. He has, like, creepy moments in this chapter, and it kind of begins here, where she gets in the car and he leans over her to shut the door i'm not here for it no it. there's so much like physical creepiness in this chapter from him it's just unnecessary and gross yeah i really don't like it and it's also the kind of thing that resonates really hard as like a innocuous thing that somebody would do that you can't like it makes you feel uncomfortable but if you're trying to tell someone why somebody made you feel uncomfortable and you're like, oh, they like lent across me to close the car door, it sounds really innocuous. Yes. But it's like, no, you can be made to feel really uncomfortable by something like that. And the fact that Lyra then goes on to say about how she feels safe in the car really shocks me because I would not feel safe in that car if that guy had just like lent over me to close the door. Like, just tell me to close the door myself. Just be like, pull the door to you. I could do that. Don't lean across me to do it. Well, this is the thing. It's because she she equates richness and power with safety. The reason why I think she does that is because of Azriel. I know that Azriel lost his money and all that kind of shit in his land and whatever, but he is still powerful and he was rich. And I just think that she, I mean, uh, opinions changed of him now, but I think 
somewhere in her brain that's kind of what she's been brought up on and also just growing up around Jordan College and seeing all the scholars and the master and all she's ever known is rich men. Yeah, it's a certain level of like familiarity is safety and is there anything more familiar to Lyra who's grown up in Jordan than a rich guy acting rich? This also feels just a lot like a Rolls-Royce advert. <laughs> so everything about the car was smooth and soft and powerful and then the car pulled out from the pavement and moved away with no noise at all <laughs> she was safe in a powerful car with a rich man like this there's just so much like phil loves this car so much do you think that he got given one or something and they were like look we'll give you a rolls royce for free but you have to put it in your book and you have to be like really nice about it <laughs> god i mean maybe <laughs> he just seems to really love this car and it's it's really odd <laughs> it is, it is. they do like a relatively normal amount of chit chat where they're chatting about the skulls but lyra's still very anxious and like checking behind her all the time and like not really following the conversation so charles is being like oh did you know that some of the skulls are really old indeed and some of them are Neanderthal? And Lyra's like, yeah, yeah, sure, I knew that. And she doesn't, like, register, like, really what he's saying. And he asks about her friend and Lyra thinks that she's talking. he's talking about Will. It's this weird thing where you think she's being tripped up and then she's not and she feels safe again because he's like, oh, no, the friend you said you were staying with, of course. Yeah, lots of little, like, bits like that. This is where she says, um, or this is where it says, this was a harder world to tell lies in than she thought. And I was just wondering your opinion on why you think it's harder to tell li for Lyra to tell lies in our world. Just because she doesn't know it, I think. Because telling lies in a world where you don't understand how any of the societal structure functions and like any of the like class systems or technologies or anything functions, like it is going to be a lot harder. But it's odd that she hasn't thought of that. Mm. And then she has the memory again of like something's nagging at her. This old man was familiar in some long lost way and she just couldn't place it. Give that pin mm. a little wiggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they start talking about like dark matter and he's like, oh, I read an article in the Times. I'm like not really sure what he's trying to get out of this like small talk here. I think he's trying to like ingratiate himself with her and we're finding it sinister because we know it's weird if an adult does have an interest in that. It usually means they're a Coulter or an Azrael type. And it's all this kind of like trying to make her feel comfortable enough that then he can rob her blind. Uh, just like to point out that Charles Latram has an Azrael vibe in that he has a chauffeur. <laughs> he is not driving this car himself. He is so privileged he has a chauffeur. And that is like a massive... Lyra might not find it odd. She's like, oh, he's just got a servant because that's normal in her world. But in Will's world, somebody with a chauffeur is fancy. Totally. She asks him to like pull over. She's where she needs to be. And then this is the creepiest, vilest thing ever. The old man held open the door on his side so that Lyra had to climb past his knees to get out. There was a lot of space, but somehow it was awkward and she didn't want to touch him, nice as he was. Disgusting. It's not nice at all. It's not nice at all. It's gross. Get out of the car. If you're going to let somebody out of your side of the car, get out of the car. She's a 12-year-old girl who has just had to clamber over this man because he wanted her to. It's really gross. The levels of grossness to that. I am surprised it made it into the book. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's written in the 90s. That's the only reason they got away with it, because you couldn't write that today without it coming off as infinitely more sinister than I imagine it was supposed to be here. Because in theory here, it's like, oh, it's an opportunity. He gets close enough to her that she's distracted and he goes in the backpack and steals it. It's all just thievery that makes this sneaky and insidious, as opposed to like 
No, he, that is genuinely predatorily creepy. I think that there wasn't enough thought around the fact that Lyra's a child. If it was Mrs. Coulter in this situation or another adult woman, it still would have been creepy as fuck, don't get me wrong. But like that added level of Lyra being a child, a 12-year-old child, is really, really fucking just horrendously vile. If it was an adult in that situation, it wouldn't have happened because they would have said, can you please move so that I can I'm get I'm going to get out this side. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I'll just get out on the roadside. You're all right. It is very much the like horrendous abuse of power that is making someone think that that's a normal thing to do, clamber over somebody to get out of a car. Like, not unless you're very good friends. And even then, just get out of the car. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking gross. So she leaves the car and... She wants to ask the alethiometer because she's got a feeling about that man. And he hands her her rucksack as she exits the car. Yes, yes. We go back into Chittagatse and Will is reading the letters from his dad again. And he just keeps looking again and again at the reference to the baby, to himself. That one reference in all those letters to the baby. Bless him. The only thing he can fixate on is that one tiny reference his dad made to him. And it doesn't even refer to him by name. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, There's one bit here that I just wanted to call out. It says, he sat on the terrace hearing the distant shouts of children diving off the harbour mouth. And that kind of just highlights to me the difference between Will and Lyra. He sits and listens to the kids while she goes off to play with them. And I think that, like, as a person who was bullied when I was younger... I can really relate to that. Not to put too much of a downer on this episode, but kids playing while I sat on my own was a big part of my childhood. So like, I can really relate to Will when he is sat here in that. And it's like such a throwaway line and like that might not have been the intention from Phil, but it, it just it, like triggered something in my memory and just made me think about that. It is very much like Lyra sees a group of kids and sees an opportunity. Will sees a group of kids and sees a threat. And I think that's a really interesting and important distinction to make between Will's attitude and Lyra's attitude and how they might like grow and change. Absolutely. Lyra comes running up to him, wild-eyed, Pan is a snarling wildcat. He's too distraught to hide. Lyra is sobbing with rage, her chest heaving, her teeth grinding. Um, She's like screaming and shouting about wanting to kill him and wishing Yorick was here and saying, Will, I've done wrong, I'm so sorry. She can't really get the words out. She's like, that old man, he's nothing but a low thief. He stole from me, he stole it. That stinky old man <laughs> with his rich clothes and his servant driving his car. I've done wrong, I've done such stupid things. And she's crying and crying. And she's... She sobbed so passionately he thought the hearts really did break and hers was breaking now for she fell to the ground wailing and shuddering and Pan beside her became a wolf and howled with bitter grief. I would really like to kind of pull this out and say I don't think this is a measured reaction to the loss of the alethiometer. Your reaction to that loss is indignance, rage, a sense of injustice, all of these things and regret. But what I think this has triggered for her is a tremendous amount of there's this really interesting thing that large amounts of grief does is that when you start to feel any kind of emotion that is negative, it really loves to piggyback on. And I think a lot of what Lyra is having right now is when was the last time she made a really big mistake and she lost something that meant something to her? It was Roger and she's still processing it and we've not seen her display a lot of any kind of super strong emotion up till now in the book and she's just, it's tipped her over the edge and she physically can't get the words out enough that she can speak and that really resonates 
as like a big factor of her like grief and trauma piggybacking onto another emotion of another situation and really heightening and expanding everything yeah really stands out and resonates with me i completely agree with you i had the exact same note on that i was like this is not just her losing the alethiometer this is everything that she has been through and is still going through that is claw it's got a claw its way out somehow and this is how it's doing it uh, and also just pan howling as a wolf oh, oh god. god it is it is heartbreaking. Will's right. If hearts could break, this is what it would look like because, yeah, she's so distraught she can't speak. So Will asks Pan and I think that's a really lovely thing. And I wonder if Will had a demon, if this would be a situation where Will's demon would ask Pan. Yes. Yeah. And again, like I know I say it all the time, but it shows Will's emotional intelligence for someone so young. And also Pan became a young clumsy dog with lowered ears and wagging tail squirming with self-abasement. Oh, <laughs> just like it's just cute i know it's horrible and like i don't want them to feel that way but i'm like oh it's heartbreaking but then also cute <laughs> pan explains what's happened and lyra's hiding her face in her hands and pressing her head down against the pavement she is so distraught pan's like changing shape he's so agitated and i am not here for will's reaction he's getting the information out of her right now and she explains she explains how she met charles she explains what happened and how things were stolen from her and the entire time so distraught so like upset and then also on top of everything she explains why she feels even more guilty which is the only reason this happened is because i didn't do what i was supposed to do for you and she's saying like i'm sorry that my mistake that was in part driven by something selfish has impacted your larger goal of finding your father and that i've lost the tools that would help us to do that and will seems to just then lose all emotional intelligence and all sympathy for lyra and goes really cold with her and i'm really not here for that because you can see how distraught she is and that it's not just about this i kind of disagree with you shockingly because i'm usually the first one to like call will out but I think before she mentions a bit about his dad, I think he's dealing with it quite well. He's saying like, did he see you come back through the window? She says no. And he's like, well, we're okay then. He's not going to know that we're here. And she's like, but the alethiometer. And he's like, yeah, tell me about that. And like, he, he's actually sounding like he wants to hear about it. And I think like, I think that it's warranted him reacting like that. Like all he's wanted to do for as long as we've known him, which obviously isn't long, but you can see how intense the feelings are for him is to find his dad. And now Lyra is telling him that she has lost the ability to do that. And it's not her fault. And I don't feel like he's blaming her, but I feel like it's warranted that he would be angry about that. I just think that he's allowing that anger to be directed at Lyra where it shouldn't be directed because she seizes his wrist and she needs him to say like, I am upset, but I don't blame you personally. Someone has done this to you. And he like breaks away from her and walks away and she says she's so sorry. And he says, what's the use of that? I don't care if you're sorry or not, you did it. And like, it's just a very harsh way of phrasing, being sorry won't help us now. What's happened has happened, but it comes off way harsher. I feel like he, the way that he says like, you did it, she did do it. She did make the choice to not follow what the alethiometer was telling her to do and i feel like this is one of the times where i will kind of give will the benefit of the doubt because 
He is a child. He's not going to know how to react in that situation where it's been dangled in front of him that there might be some way to find his dad or whatever, and then it's been taken away from him. And I just feel like, how would you emotionally react to that as a child? I agree, but I also think he can see that she feels bad enough already without him. At, like she she blames herself without him blaming her on top of it like if you go up to someone and you say i made a mistake i did something wrong what you don't need is somebody to be like yeah you made a mistake you did it wrong you should feel bad i agree but also sometimes it's difficult to control those emotions i mean i myself have definitely been in situations where i've seen how bad the person feels for doing something bad to me and i even as like a young adult have been have handled it poorly so i agree with you in the sense that i would like to see like will treat Lyra a little better but I kind of forgive him for it because I can see the whole situation and kind of like understand the like level of hurt and anger he must be feeling. He's kind of had to raise himself in a way so he hasn't really been taught how to deal with those emotions. I just struggle because partly because I know it goes on to him being equally still quite harsh with her because Lyra has an idea she remembers she's got the business card and she knows where he lives and she's like we can go we can try and get it and will says sir charles latram cbe and was like he's a sir that means people automatically believe him and not us what did you want me to do anyway go to the police the police are after me or if they weren't yesterday they will be by now lyra's like we could steal it we can do this and he literally just outright says like you're stupid i'm not here for that (laughs) and it all comes off as very very harsh she's made a mistake she's admitted a mistake she said it's her fault she's thought of a solution that she will need help with but she's trying to come up with a solution to make amends for the mistake that she has made that also is a mistake but also it's not her fault this has been done to her she is the victim of a crime of a theft yeah no i definitely agree with you on this bit i think this is where it gets i can i can kind of deal with him like pulling his hand away from her and like walking away and being like i can't believe you did this kind of thing but like when it comes to like just being verbally abusive, I'm I'm not here for it. I think it's that like rudeness that filters back through for me when reading it that makes me feel like everything else is too harsh because he just continues to be mean even after his like initial upset reaction. Yeah, he hasn't like, I suppose, calmed down in a way and let it kind of like wash over him in a way that he can react a little bit better. I will say I love the description of what you just read about he's a sir, that means people automatically believe him and not us. Oh, so fucking true. So true. And yeah, I agree with you. Like, yeah, he's saying like, I've never heard anything so stupid in my life. Uh, You think we can just go to his house and creep in and steal it. And I do like this bit in a way because... It really makes me feel for Lyra because like Will's saying like, well, we can't just go in there. There's going to be like burglar alarms and all that kind of shit. And then Lyra's like, I've never heard of those things. We we ain't got them in my world. I couldn't know that, Will. And I can just really, for this chapter, it's one of the most like visceral parts for me. I don't know why, but I can just really picture her saying that in like a really like calm, but quite upset way. And it like, it upsets me to think about her being like, I don't know these things. Like I, I can't, how am I supposed to know that? I like that it's like she's aware of what is her fault and what isn't her fault and that she's trying to make it better. And he literally says to her, use your bloody brain, which I think is also horrendous. But yeah, her being like, I've never heard of those things. We haven't got them. Like, I feel like that's like a really good, like, hang on a minute. No, wait. I felt like I deserved some of the meanness that you were giving me before, but this I don't deserve. And I feel like it sh- it shows her growth as well. because It's very calm and collected for Lyra, whereas I would have 
I wouldn't have been surprised if she just like showered him then, but she chooses to do it in like a very calm way. And he kind of then again calms that down slightly and is like, well, okay, you might not know those things, but it's a big house. It's probably a big house. There's so many places it could hide. By the time we found it, the police probably could have come. And she hangs her head because it's all true. And I just think it is also like, I feel like she's really defeated right now. It's not helping, Will. It's not helping. (laughs) No, definitely not. And she says, what are we going to do then? He didn't answer, but it was we for certain. He was bound to her now, whether he liked it or not. I think this is the moment that he should have taken before to like collect himself because he like walks over to the water's edge and like tries to like muddle it through and is clearly like assessing the situation and comes back and is like right we're just gonna have to go there we're just gonna have to like go and see what happens we don't have a plan but we know we've got to do and like he kind of has like come to terms with the situation which i think is something he needed to do a conversation prior like after his initial reaction he probably needed to say I'm going to go and process this Lyra before we come back and carry on talking rather than just being mean to her. But also, he's 12. So that 12-year-olds don't have that emotional capability yet. So <laughs> yeah, the fact that he's even doing that, again, I feel like my buzzword for this episode is definitely emotional intelligence. But again, it shows that because like, I fucking wouldn't have done that if I was 12. I would have been probably throwing a tantrum somewhere. Yeah, yeah. They decide to just go and see what happens. They walk to Headington which is in Oxford. It takes them an hour and a half, which seems like a very long way for a couple of kids to have to walk. Lyra feels very alone because in the past when she's done big, long adventure walks, she's had friends around her. And I am imagining the air between Lyra and Will is very cold right now. And that she's generally feeling lost and alone as well because she's experienced a big betrayal in this world. She kind of put her faith in someone that she probably shouldn't have because he was creepy. And then she's lost something that was important to her. Here in the city that was both hers and not hers, danger could look friendly and treachery smiled and smelled sweet. Even if they weren't going to kill her or part her from Pantalaemon, they had robbed her of her only guide. Without the alethiometer, she was just a little girl, lost. Oh, Lyra. <laughs> oh, Lyra. That's really sad that bit, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We then get an excellent description of Creepy Charles's fancy house and... A thing that completely passed me by in previous read-throughs of this book that I absolutely love because of my watch, because of the watch-through of the TV show, this has now like stood out to me with bells on. And it's that there's something about it that made Will grit his teeth. He didn't know why until suddenly he remembered an occasion when he was very young. His mother had taken him to a house not unlike this. They dressed in their best clothes and he had to be on his best behaviour. And an old man and woman had made his mother cry and they'd left the house as she was still crying. I honestly can't remember what I thought when I read that for the first time. Did I just completely skip past it and not think about it? Now it seems obvious, right? Right? So interesting. So in the TV series, we had a scene with Will's grandparents living in a very fancy, very nice house, not dissimilar to Charles Latram's house. And this is a hint to that. We've heard tell that perhaps there's something in a lantern slide that might help us to understand this further, but we have not read those yet. I love it. I love that it's just like this half a sentence. Will's past is so mysterious still and his mistrust of people is so mysterious still in a lot of ways because we haven't had a lot of expansion on it. And little mysterious snippets like this just really help to like build everything. It's great. And Lyra noticing and then realising that it's, that he's feeling tense and also notices that it's his feelings and it's not something she can help with and kind of just lets him feel those feelings and they carry on. They take a deep breath and walk up the drive to go to the door, which has a very fancy doorbell that 
Will doesn't know how to use because the house is old and fancy. <laughs> and Lyra has to do it. What is that? Like a bell pull? It sounds like a big light switch or something. It's literally like a pulley light switch thing and the rope like runs through a hole in the wall or like next to the door and it literally rings like a physical bell on the other side. Downton Abbey style. Uh, I've never seen Downton Abbey. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but it seems like an oldie worldy thing and it also seems like the kind of like wanky thing a very posh house would have because they're so proud of all their vintage and original fixtures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the driver answers the door and Will is very cleverly trying to like take in all the stuff, like the burglar alarm and all that kind of stuff. He's casing the joint. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) He's planning a heist. (laughs) And then like Charles comes to the door. He's not guilty or ashamed at all. He's just like, yes, here I am, which is like any fucking classic powerful white man you've ever seen in your fucking life. Yeah, (sighs) yep, yep. He found him disconcertingly smooth and calm and powerful. And not in the least guilty or ashamed. I just find disconcertingly smooth a really interesting descriptor. I assume he means like smooth and suave, but for me, I'm like, next time I shave my legs, I'm going to be like, they're disconcertingly smooth. I mean, God, I haven't fucking shaved my legs in It's It's winter. We don't do that in winter. (laughs) Will talks to Charles and he calls Lyra. Lyra, obviously she's known to Charles as Lizzie so he kind of drops her in it. And Charles is like, Lyra? I don't know a Lyra. What an unusual name. I know a child called Lizzie and who are you? It's a bit like smarmy and smooth isn't it? Not smooth but like It's so patronising. Yeah. Yeah. He knows the deal. He knows what's happening and he's like, I don't know a Lyra. It's very childish as well. Patronising, childish. Yeah, I hate the like mocking tone you can imagine to it as well. Like he knows what he's done. Yeah. Will is like, my friend thinks she's left something in your car. So I think it's quite clever to frame it in that way. And he invites them in and shows them to his study. Which surprises them a little. And I can imagine them being a bit like, we didn't expect to have to come into your house. I don't know if you've ever had it, like if you went to like call on your friends or something when you went to play out and you hadn't really been in their house much before because you usually just play out and like their parents are like, oh, they're just doing this. Do you want to come in and wait? And you're like, inside? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'll just hang around on your drive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just, I'll sit on the doorstep, thanks. <laughs> you like awkwardly sit on the sofa with their mum and dad watching telly like, this isn't weird at all. <laughs> Every surface is polished and clean and the house smells very nice. And there's a servant standing in the background as if he's waiting to be called. Again, just the fanciness of this, the poshness of this, the in- the entitlement is ridiculous. They go into the study and it's got like loads of bookshelves, pictures, hunting trophies. Ooh. There were three or four glass-fronted cabinets containing antique scientific instruments, brass microscopes, telescopes, covered in green leather, sextants, compasses. It was clear why he wanted the alethiometer. My only note for that is <laughs> sextants. Me too. <laughs> oh, so childish. <laughs> Yeah, it's that. It makes perfect sense. I love it. It's like, have you ever, have you been to the? It's not the nautical museum in Greenwich. The like clock museum with all the like fancy instruments. It's all like clocks and navigation and like really fancy weird clocks that are made to still function using a pendulum even when on like a moving boat. Yeah, I imagine it all like that kind of stuff. It's a very boring but interesting museum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They talk. They're like, oh, Larry left something in your car, and he says, is this the object you mean? And he pulls out the alethiometer. Larry's like, yes, and she bursts out and she reaches over for it but he closed his hand the desk would wide and she couldn't reach and before she could do anything else he swung around and placed the alethiometer in a glass fronted cabinet before locking it and dropping the key in his waistcoat pocket 
but it isn't yours, Lizzie, he said. Or Lyra, if that's your name. I hate him so much. Like, I hate him. The abuse of power and the, like, power <gasps> imbalance, it's kind of something that's hinted at and used very well to very dramatic effect throughout this entire series, is adults being patronising to children, ignoring them when they're trying to tell them something important, or in this, like, in this situation, like, abusing that power dynamic. And... Again, reasons why we love Mary. She makes space for Lyra. She listens to Lyra. Reasons we hate Charles. He doesn't listen and he is outright lying and gaslighting children. And it's something everyone can relate to is like being spoken over as a child or being overruled and having that lack of power of the people that are older than you around you. And there's something really visceral and really, really familiar and therefore extra, extra frustrating when you're reading it. (laughs) No, absolutely. And like... The innocence of Will and Lyra as well being like, it's mine, it's my alethiometer. And then Will being like, but it is hers. Honestly, she's shown it me. I know it's hers because they think that will help. And it, it just doesn't. And everything he says in these in these last pages of the chapter, I just, I'm so angry about it. I'm so angry about it. <sighs> it's amazing that a book can be so rage inducing. I don't have to prove anything because it's in my possession. It's assumed to be mine, like all other items in my collection. I must say, Lyra, I'm surprised to find you so dishonest. And it's just like, ugh, it's absolutely infuriating. And then him being like, frankly, you haven't got a hope of convincing anyone that a precious piece like this belongs to you. I'll tell you what, let's call the police. And just that like, that power move, that like real abuse of power and privilege is really hard to watch and witness also i full well know if i was in that situation i wouldn't stand a hope in hell either no he clearly knows their situation he knows how to play them he knows that calling the police they won't want that because of will's situation he clearly knows everything that's going on with them and is using it against them and the fact that he's pretending like he isn't He's simultaneously rubbing it in their faces and also pretending to be nice. And I hate it. I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Lyra runs around the desk and then Pan is in her arms, snarling wildcat. Sir Charles blinked to the sudden appearance of the demon, but hardly flinched. Mm -hmm. Maybe wobble Mm -hmm. that pin a little bit Interesting. Lyra also threatens to have him killed, which I love. (laughs) I love that as well. I fucking love that. I love that it goes from him being like super calm and being like, well, children, we can't do this and we can't do that. Like, blah, blah, blah. Everything's calm. And then she's just like, you ought to die. If I can, I'll make someone kill you. You're not worth leaving alive. And she spits in his face. Yep. I have a weird, complicated history with spitting in people's faces. I've never done it. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay, good. It sounded like you had. (laughs) I have had it done to me. Oh, no. I have said for a long time that it's one of the worst things that... I find it one of the most degrading, humiliating things. When I was younger, I had a real powerful hatred of it. And the person that did it to me did it because they knew how much I hated it. So that made that even worse. It's kind of like petered off for me throughout the years as I've become an adult. I still think it's vile, but I don't know. Like, I'm kind of like into this bit because <laughs> like, I hate Charles so much. So I think my thinking around this is that I completely see why she's done it. She's so enraged. She's a child. She doesn't understand. She doesn't know how else to react. She's not the person with the power in this scenario. No. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why I hate it so much is because I think that a lot of the time when it's a thing that is used, it is a thought out move from the other people, from the other person. It's kind of like, how can I like humiliate this person in front of me? 
But I don't think Lyra's thinking like that. She just doesn't know. She can't, she literally cannot control herself to the point where she's like, she just does it out of instinct. Like she she can't physically hurt him. She knows that she wouldn't have a chance of physically hurting him. So she's like, what can I do in this situation to show how angry I am? And it just comes out of her. And I hate him so much. This is a testament to how much I hate him that I'm not actually mad at Lyra for doing it. I hate him so much that he fucking deserves it. Yeah. It's a lot. And also his reaction to it is is a lot as well. He like calmly wipes his face with a silk, a silk handkerchief, of course, and says, have you any control over yourself? Go and sit down, you filthy brat. No, thank you. No, thank you. Don't love that. And Lyra basically being like, she's hit her breaking point again and she's crying, which isn't surprising. But while she's crying and her eyes are clouded, Will sees something bizarre that he, so bizarre, he thought he imagined it. And it is a snake briefly popping out of the shirt cuff of Mm. Sir Charles's jacket and then disappearing again. And we're going to take a collection of pins that we've placed (laughs) over a few days and move them all up to this point right here and then kind of ignore them again. Have a think on it, maybe. Yeah. Again, I hate that he's staying so calm throughout this whole thing. Sir Charles is very calm. He moves and sits down and then explains to them very patronisingly once more. I think you'd better listen to me instead of behaving in this uncontrolled way. You really haven't any choice. The instrument is in my possession and will stay there. I want it. I'm a collector. You can spit and stamp and scream all you like, but by the time you've persuaded anyone else to listen to you, I shall have plenty of documents to prove that I bought it. I can do that very easily, and then you'll never get it back. And I hate it. I hate hate such a clear injustice, and that it's very obvious that that's probably how he's had gotten many of the items in his collection is through like privilege, entitlement, nefarious means, and backed up by said privilege and entitlement. And I'm not here for it. It makes me think of all the shit that's in like our museums in the UK and in America and all around the world of like basically colonizers just stealing shit, calling it their own, getting all the documents they need to back that shit up. I hope that's what Phil was getting at here because that's what it really reminds me of. The injustice of it all, like you mentioned, there's nothing that can be done about it. You just feel in this moment when you're reading this shit, you're like, he could, because of the fucking patriarchy, he could absolutely do that shit. Just wrapping himself up in bureaucracy. Yeah, the classism of it, the like fucking, the everything of it. There's nothing that can be done. Well, we think there's nothing that can be done, but like you read it and you're like, yeah, shit. That is the thing that would definitely happen here and has happened here many a time. And there's no way that the people that rightfully own these things can get them back because they don't have the power behind it, them to do that. The power, the money, all that kind of shit that they'd need to challenge it. They don't have it. And then now what he's about to ask of them is also very indicative. Oh, well, if you just do these things that are completely unjust for me to ask of you, then you might stand a chance of getting back this thing that was rightfully yours in the first place. Great. He tells them that there is something that he wants that he can't get for himself. He kind of very calmly drops a bit of a bomb here where he's like, I know that you found a window, that you found a doorway to somewhere else and it's somewhere that I can't go. I know that it's near where I dropped Lyra off. So it's very like, also very threatening. He's just revealing that he knows a lot more about them. But he says, you see, the man who made that doorway has got a knife. He's hiding in that other world right now and he's extremely afraid. He has reason to be. If he's where I think he is, he's in an old stone tower which has angels carved around the doorway. So that's where you have to go. And I don't care how you do it, but I want that knife. Bring it to me and you can have the alethiometer. I shall be sorry to lose it, but I'm a man of my word. That's what you have to do. Bring me the knife. So there's a knife, eh? What's so fancy about this knife that makes it better than the alethiometer and worth trading for the alethiometer, eh? Eh? Can I 
just say as well, as soon as the book is called The Subtle Knife, it's like, we're halfway, we're, mo- we're just over halfway through now, and that's the first mention of a knife, and we don't even know whether it's the knife that the book title refers to. I mean, it would be quite the red herring if it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, interesting. Mm, 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 mm. That's a good chapter, actually. I, I enjoy that. As, as much as it's horribly stressful, it moves us forward in a way that now we know there's a knife. It's stressful, it's hard to read, but it has a lot of emotions occurring and is very, yeah, it's a driving force of like emotional development and plot progression and not in a way that we've had in a couple of chapters, to be honest, because we've done a lot of exposition chapters and a lot of like chapters where we're learning, we're learning about the structure of the universe and all this kind of stuff, but we've not had a lot of like major plot progression and this is pretty huge. (laughs) Yeah, it's very true. And I think it's because like, all the progression like the plot progression is happening with will and lyra so we're not when we're not with them as much as i enjoy being with lee and as much as i enjoy being the witches like you said a lot of the time at the minute it is kind of just exposition with them so it's nice to like break it up in a way that you know you're kind of going to get back to the action next chapter if we have to have all this exposition you know you're going to get quite a bit of action in the next chapter at least the next chapter is called the tower of the angels so I suspect we're going to find out what's in that creepy tower that gave Lyra the heebie-jeebies. Wowzers. Do you have an award to give out this week? I do. And again, I forgot what it was because I, like I said, I made my notes a while ago and I was wondering whether like, I would have changed my mind. I was thinking about giving it to that poor girl's granny just for being called out. Uh, bless her. <laughs> I did think it was a tough one, but I have gone for Mary. And I know I've given my award to Mary before, but I think she deserves all the awards. Just for tripping up that officer on the way out and just for like instantly knowing to protect Lyra um, because Lyra doesn't get much of that in her life. Mm-hmm. What about you? Who's your award for? It's a really hard one because mistakes have been made. <laughs> Everyone's had like quite a mixed bag of a chapter. I think it might just have to be for Pan this week because he's done a lot of having already warned Lyra that it probably wasn't the right thing to do and like but also being there for Lyra and supporting Lyra and communicating when she couldn't and I think it's probably been a really hard week to be a demon and I think he's done a really good job and it's a lot of emotions to feel and a lot of changes to go through in a very quick period when he's happy and really upset and I think he needs this just to like bolster him for what's to come. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that he stepped up this week in terms of communicating with Will when Lyra couldn't. And I do feel sorry for him for all like the form changes, like you said, that he's been through this week. Bless him. He's going to be tired. He's going to need a good night's sleep. Maybe instead of like a trophy, he's just going to get like a really lovely embroidered blanket. (laughs) Oh, that would be lovely. As you may guess, we are still running our giveaway. To enter the giveaway to win some super cool Herd on Materials merch like bookmarks and stickers, you can leave a review, a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave a review, including Facebook. You can screenshot that review and email it to us at her.materialspod at gmail.com and that email with the screenshotted review is your entry into a prize draw. When we get 50 emails with positive reviews, we will pull out 10 names from a hat and those people will get some super cool free hdm pod merch yeah give us five stars so nice things yeah also we are still collecting emails for a mailbag episode that we'll do at some point 
So if you have any thoughts on Northern Lights or the Subtle Knife, let us know. We don't want to, we don't want to be spoilery. So anything you can still, you are still welcome to email us about anything you would like. But for this particular mailbag, we'll be focusing on Northern Lights and the Subtle Knife and the TV show as well. Should we throw that in there? I think if there's enough separate emails about the TV show that are spoilery, we will separate that out into another episode so that people are kept in a spoiler-free zone or we'll put them in a separate segment at the end of the podcast so people yeah. can stay unspoiled. <laughs> we'll figure we'll figure out the logistics, but send us your emails. Tell us all your thoughts and feelings. <laughs> Tell us your thoughts. Send them to, as Rach said, her.materialspod at gmail.com. We're not sure when we're going to do it yet, but we are gathering some emails and we've had some bloody great ones so yeah and you know we bloody love an email we haven't rich we haven't said that for ages we do bloody love an email we love an email so send them in and uh, we will very much enjoy reading them and potentially include them in a mailbag episode yeah yes Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Herd Art Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can also email us at herd.materialspod at gmail.com and find us on our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rage. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Lyra and Pan, you can find me hanging out on Twitter and Instagram at Faye which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. If you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and over in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. Huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. And don't forget, keep telling stories and all will be well. Happy New Year! Yeah!